March 25th, 2012. VGN Radio presents Kevin's Oblast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. Tonight's topic, the Soviet Union. This is the North American service of Radio Moscow broadcasting on 17.70, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45, 15.45,
know a little bit about it here and there, but aren't really all that familiar with uh, exactly what happened. And, you know, I kind of wanted to talk briefly about the history of it so people can kind of understand what was actually going on and then talk about a few interesting stories and tidbits. And I might try to throw in some more audio clips here and there to, you know, kind of make it a little bit more interesting. Uh, now, to understand what really, you know, happened in uh, Russia at the time was that, you know, after World War One, you basically had a king, which was the Tsar of Russia, and, you know, they uh, they controlled all the wealth, and they worked with, you know, other wealthy, uh, you know, landowners and business owners and things to, uh, you know, contain all the wealth that they had, and the people were living in, uh, you know, basically a poverty, and were, in most cases throughout Russia, um, which you could almost describe as peasants, and a peasant is people that, you know, work off the land and, and barely, you know, make enough to survive for themselves. And, you know, they would have mines for mining, mining operations, you know, and forestry and all these sorts of things, because, you know, you know, around that time of the world, the rest of the world is, you know, in business and building things and all this sort of stuff, and uh, Russia, you know, was very much... Um, sort of stagnant. And what ultimately happened was a series of um, strikes by uh, union organizing. But ultimately, you know, these these union organizations then, you know, not like the ones that we had now, were, you know, basically not like government controlled or passed by laws and things. I mean, these were people that were, you know, uh, working at mines in terrible conditions, and they would just get together and and strike and say we're not working until our our uh, our demands had been met, etc. And this sort of thing um, would create you know all kinds of various problems and upheavals and uh, battles and things. And there was a number of them. I'm not going to get into all of them. There was a number of them that went on, and eventually this sort of grew into a situation whereby. Um, the they became more and more uh you know organized and spread out throughout the country and i mean russia's gigantic it's vast and this took a while you know for a lot of this to take root and all of this sort of thing and um and then what ultimately happened was is that the you know the the security of the czar was basically like well, we can't you know guarantee your safety anymore and and all this sort of thing so the czar was removed from power and then you had two different camps of, of people. You basically had um, the, what you could describe as the white camp, which was a group of people that sort of formed a government, uh, and they were trying to um, enact some reforms, but keeping everything, you know, uh, the way it sort of was, but without the czar, etc. And uh, it was not in power very long. It didn't have a lot of control over things because the Union organized groups, which we will call the Red uh, Group, um, was you know growing in power and was not listening to them. And ultimately, this turned out to be oops, my phone went off. This ultimately turned out to be a bit of a war, so um, or a revolution, if you want to call it that. Although it's it's hard to decide on. I guess they call it the Russian Revolution, so I guess it is a revolution. It, it's hard to you know say it's. I guess you know a. I always see a revolution personally, and this is probably wrong, but I always see a revolution where you're trying to overthrow your 
your government. One side is trying to overthrow the government. And I think that this was more like a, um, a country that basically had no government. And there was two sides trying to become the government. But ultimately, I suppose the white group was in control. And so the red group was trying to overthrow them. And this became a very big um, uh, war throughout the country. And it was not... I guess it was, you know, the best way to say it was it wasn't it wasn't pleasant or anything like that. But I mean, it was not like, say, the American Revolutionary War. Okay, you know, the American Revolutionary War. You basically picked a side. You went and you signed up. You went out and you fought. You know, and and most of the time, you know, if you weren't going to to go in, if you weren't going to fight, I mean, everybody did. But, you know, if you weren't going to, that's I guess you could just not. I got to work the farm. That's what I do. I'm going to work the farm. I'm not going to go fight. And, you know, you could do that. Well, in Russia, I mean, they would go into a town, they would, and both sides would do this, and they would gather up all the people, and they would hold them at gunpoint, and they would say, you're joining our side, or we're going we're gonna to shoot all these people in this town. And so people would have to join. You know, it was like mandatory conscription. And so, uh, you, you know, if you were wearing the wrong colors, white versus red or whatever, you would be shot and killed where you stood. And, you know, these, this battle just raged across all of Russia until ultimately the red side um, formed, you know, a, a new government and became uh, the, uh, essentially the, the, the communist government that you had. Now, communism is an interesting thing because it sort of stems out of socialism. And the idea behind it was that um, you would have a, um, no money. There would be no money. Everybody would be um, given a, a job, and you would go do your job, and you would be given everything um, by the government in order to do, you know, to have your life, etc., and you would be able to live. But you wouldn't have the stresses of trying to live with, you know, class warfare, like classes. Like, you wouldn't have to, like, be beholden to... A rich person, you know, a rich guy decides how much you make, a rich guy decides where, you know, what you can buy, what you can afford, etc. Now, if you think about old American mining towns, okay, and you think about, like, how they would go in and they would create a mine and the, and the people would come because they were looking for work and they would sort of set up around um, where the work was, right, and that would become like a little town, you know, in, in America. And the the, the the land, though, was owned by the mining company. So the mining company set a tax on everything, and they were the ones who controlled the store, etc. So you would go in to make money, and you would make money at the mine, but anything you wanted, like food, clothes, you know, items, to place to stay, etc., was all owned by the people that owned the, the, the mine. So you would ultimately end up not making any money because you would have to spend it on overpriced things in order to survive. And this is why we ended up with all these mining strikes back in the day. And so... Uh, Russia was very similar to this, uh, probably more so. And so, you know, people did not have a lot of um, interest in following the, um, the leadership of these, um, you know, corporations and uh, business owners and landowners and all this sort of stuff because they were just kept in, you know, poverty. Th things never were allowed to sort of evolve from that. So... The idea behind it was, you know, the government, which would be a central government, would determine, um, you know, who gets what, and everybody gets a share, and all this sort of thing. And, and the thing is, is that this was an experiment. It was an experiment 
whereby they would um, they didn't know exactly what they were what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, and so they would come up with these six year plans, etc., and they would sort of set things into motion and, and do that. Now, um, you know, one of the first things that you know that ultimately happened was the fact that uh, um, the World War Two took place, and uh, World War Two basically, um, you know, caused huge devastation and everything for Russia. But it it allowed Stalin, the leader of of the Soviet Union, to base or Russia anyway, uh, establish great power. And these the the Russians uh, essentially, you know, had to fight back the Germans, and they had to fight back through all of these Western nations all the way up into the you know, up into the German border. And when the Russians sort of moved west across the map, they took over the countries that they had to go through. So, you know, Ukraine, uh, Hungary, Poland, uh, Romania, Czechoslovakia, uh, all of these southern countries, you know, that you hear about today in the news, Georgia, Dagestan, um, Kurdistan, etc. All of these things were controlled by the Russians, and that became the Soviet Union. And they would go into these countries, and they would basically kill the the leaders of of the of the current government because at that time probably they were Nazi or or um, in collusion with the Nazis because the Nazis had already swept east. So it was easy for them to go in and say, "Oh, well, you're dead." And they would go to the local communist party, and the local communist party might have been just a handful of people, you know. And they would say, "Well, who's the president of the communist party in here?" And they would be like. Um, well, I guess it's Carl. Carl, you're the pre- we the five of us voted you in, and he would be like, I get, okay, I'm I am the president of uh, the Czechoslovakian Communist Party, and they would be like, okay, you're in charge, Czechoslovakia. Seriously, that's how it would happen, and and they would do that in towns and different things like that, and basically they would give them, you know, they would be like, wow, and they would be going in and they would be in control, and they were beholden to the central, what they call the. Politburo in Russia, which was the main sort of, you know, Congress or whatever of of, um, the Soviet Union. But for the most part, you know, they control their own countries. And so the idea that they had, you know, was that they would um, determine everything and, and sort of chart everything. Now, I will tell you that in the early days, this was hugely popular in Russia. I mean, there were certainly rich people that had corporations that lost everything and they were pissed and upset and all that sort of stuff, and people died and everything, and you'll have that in war. Uh, but uh, Russia's economic boom was tremendous. Um, for years after World War II, they were equal to or rivaled, or you know, slightly better than the United States in terms of economic output, which is no small feat, because the United States, uh, you know, at the time, among all countries in the world, we were number one, you know, I mean, we were just number one, and here you had, uh, the Soviet Union was um, keeping pace with us, and in many cases, kicking our ass, because this system was actually working really well for them. Uh, You know, one of the things was, is that you had people out, you know, again, you had peasants out in the country, and all this sort of stuff on these little farms, and, you know, uh, Stalin was, uh, you know, a peasant when he was growing up, and so you had this push by all of his people and the other people to provide infrastructure and resources to make these things better. So maybe you plowed a field with a, with a you know, cattle and pulling a plow in a field somewhere, and, you know, the next thing you know is you're getting a free tractor. You're getting schools set up. 
You're getting free medical care. They're giving you new uh, homes and apartment blocks and complexes. And the thing is, is there was no unemployment in Russia. There was none. Everybody had a job. You got a job no matter what. You got out of university, you got a job. You didn't go to university, you got a job. Everybody had a job. There was no unemployment. Now, you may not have liked the job that you had, but in the early years, okay, the first, you know, basically the first generation, these people never had real jobs and they never had real money. You know, not the people in towns and things, but, you know, the, the people that were out on the outskirts. And so now they've been given all of these things that they never had before, access to medical care and jobs and schools and, you know, roads were coming in and everything. And you had this great patriotic sort of feeling about your country because, you know, you beat back the Germans, you, you were now in this huge Soviet Union, and there were great feats of science going on in Russia and the Soviet Union at the time. I mean, their space program was better than our space program, you know. They basically went up into space first and had, you know, um, the first satellite, which was Sputnik, going around. And let's listen to what Sputnik was like. It was cold and clear. We could see the Milky Way shimmering across the sky. I stood in my front yard my family with me the entire neighborhood the entire city in fact the entire nation it seemed was standing outside watching what the russians had done just at the time the russians had said a tiny light appeared at the southwestern horizon and glided over our heads. Some of us cried. I stood in awe. Nothing man-made had ever been so global. Everyone knew it was there. Suddenly, a future in space seemed possible. Shortly after Sputnik, which really uh, was amazing and scary for the rest of the uh, rest of the world, including the United States, was you know this fact. And you know, think about it today. Like you sit around today, and you. No other country is really doing anything except the United States. I mean, for the most part. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not people, there are, that are, you know, China's trying to get up there and Russia's still sending things out. And so, but nothing captures, no, nothing any other country's doing, like, captures the world. I mean, you're not hearing about, like, say, France, like, suddenly landing on Mars or, uh, you know, anybody else building, like, a space station out in space, et cetera, that does anything better than what the United States does. Uh, it just doesn't really happen. And, you know, we're in this weird sort of time period where, you know, ultimately if something is going to get done, it's basically getting done by the United States. And there are other countries trying, but they're still a long ways away. So, you know, back then this was quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, the, you had the Soviet Union, they, they managed to, um, you know, reach orbit and put a satellite into orbit and it had a broadcasting a signal that people could hear. And it was probably very scary because, you know, you have this country that is basically hostile towards the United States and they're making uh, huge accomplishments 
that uh, we were unable to make ourselves. And uh, this was followed up, uh, you know, they put the first dog in space, which was Leica, and then they had the first uh, person in outer space, uh, which supposedly is Yuri Gagarin, but there's debate about that being true. However, without a question, they had the first person out in space. So, you know, this is when, of course, Kennedy comes on and says, you know, we want to get to the moon. You know, we want to be the first people to the moon. And, uh, you know, the, the Soviets, as early as 1957, were already sending rockets to the moon. They were just hitting the moon. They weren't landing on it. Uh, they would just fire a rocket. But this is no small feat. I mean, the moon is really far away. Orbit is not that far away. Like, getting up into, like, say, just a low orbit where Sputnik got to it takes an incredible amount of talent and everything to do. But it's fairly close, you know, and, it, you know, probably, I don't know, 100 miles or something up is probably, you know, you could get into some sort of low orbit. Um, I'm not going to look up right now exactly what is orbit, etc. I mean, if you look at the Ansari X prizes and all that to find out what the exact numbers are that they calculate as being space and all this sort of stuff. But the moon is like 250,000 miles away, okay? So even to be able to just hit it with a missile... Uh, back then, like 1957, where missiles, you didn't have GPS, you didn't have like laser range finding type stuff, you know, this was just, uh, basically they're aiming it, you know, and then you're just like, let it go, and then just fires it off, and you know, you, hey, look at that, it hit the, you know, it hit the moon, I mean, that sort of technology is amazing to me, they didn't even have real computers back then, it was all guys with mathematics just figuring things out with slide rules and things, uh, quite extraordinary, and so, this is scary to the United States and you know, to the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, the, um, they, they had people in space and, you know, your mind's just thinking, well, the, you know, these guys are one step away from, like, landing on the moon and building a moon base and uh, basically being able to take over the rest of the universe. I mean, you know, you didn't really, you know, understand the expense and things that this would actually take. You just know that somebody else was able to do it and we weren't. So, you know, there was quite... Uh, a, a big race, and this, the point of the show isn't to talk about the space race, but ultimately about the accomplishments that they were doing in the early days of the uh, Soviet Union that were quite uh, extraordinary, and the people there must have had a tremendous sense of pride, and for the most part, the, you know, the media, etc., that existed then was controlled by their own government, so, you know, you never really heard about any of the bad things that were going on, you know, you just knew that you had gone through this terrible war, so if you had to do without some things... You sort of, you know, that was sort of acceptable. You just said, okay, I'm going to deal with it, etc. So, you know, their economy booming, etc. And uh, you had this, um, uh, this, this big nation, and they, but it was, it was ultimately mismanaged. And the problem with it was that the government can't really react fast enough to the needs of the people and and. Uh, say, general commerce, etc., um, in order to remain profitable. Uh, you know, the government had a constant budgetary problems, and they would come up with these new plans every six years in order to try and deal with the the problems that they had. And, and you know, they couldn't motivate their people to really be great workers and work really well because... You know, you didn't really want the job you necessarily had. You kind of got moved around. If one operation got closed down for some reason, the government said, well, you know, we're not going to mine from this mine anymore. We're going to send you guys over here, and you're going to now start doing, say, forestry work. 
And you'd be like, I don't want to cut trees, man. I, I'm a miner. You know, why the fuck do I got to go cut trees down for? And, you know, so they would give you a saw and they'd be like, well, go cut those trees. And the thing is, is that you started to lose any sense of real patriotism because you realized that no matter how hard you worked, it didn't really make any sort of a difference. You got paid regardless. And so, you know, you, you just felt like, meh, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't really care, you know. And so they would try different things where they would have quotas and, you know, provide different levels of reward and, and things for, for, you know, delivering on quotas, etc., and at times, some of these things would work. I mean, the main thing that they had problem with was just, you know, what a lot of countries had problems with was just feeding their people. And, you know, you had to make sure that your farms and everything were operational. Otherwise, you had to go and get food from other places and other sources that they didn't really want to do. And so, you know, they had to come up with a lot of different things about food and grain and all this. And, you know, at the same time, they, you know, they had this large military budget. And... The the whole world of the Soviet Union was isolated and locked off from the rest of the world. We did not have the internet, right, back then, and we weren't able to really, you know, hear anything about them because the news organizations couldn't get inside these countries and really report on uh, anything, and you weren't allowed to travel into any of these countries, and they weren't allowed to travel to you. It was very much like North Korea, uh, in that you couldn't go in, you couldn't go out, you couldn't get news in or out. Um, but even less so because you didn't have any of the sort of surrounding, you know, by the minute news that comes out of, of that country. When something does happen, you hear about it. And back then you didn't really hear too much about stuff. So the country, you know, um, was, this experiment was not going so well later on. And part of that was because their, you know, their leadership in probably Brezhnev, um, but a lot of the later leaders simply just didn't uh, know how to adapt and change. And, you know, the, the problem with that was really you had this sort of um, leadership inside the Soviet Union, which uh, was all the people from the Great War against basically the Nazis. And, you know, you went from Stalin's death, and you had Khrushchev and Brezhnev, and you had some other guys that lasted about a year, and... Um, you, you know, you ultimately, all of these people served in some capacity in, in the, uh, in the Great Patriotic War, as they called it, and so they just sort of kept everything hard line, you know, by the numbers, etc., and they, you know, they had money, they had all these countries, and they were building, you know, one-to-one -one with the United States, and, and this is no small, this is no small feat. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the United States is economically dominant, and look around, you know, today, and the missiles and bombs and planes and aircraft carriers and tanks and armed troops and everything. And the Russians were basically doing the same thing. I mean, this, you know, today's military is actually smaller than it was during the Cold War. So you actually had much more going on in terms of uh, a state of readiness between both countries. And the Soviet Union was able to actually um, keep up, for the most part, with the United States, creating you know, advanced jet fighters and tanks and submarines and nuclear missiles and weapon systems and everything. Now, you can always sit there and say, well, the American stuff is always better, etc. And, you know, that's probably true. I don't know. I, you know, we never went to war with them in, in, the, uh, in the classical sense. Uh, anytime we've ever sort of faced 
Soviet artillery or um, weaponry or et cetera in the field, uh, it was always the um, it always seems like it was the later version. You know, when we attacked Iraq, that was they were using older Soviet technology. You know, and, and all through history. Uh, but you know, if you look at say when they invaded Afghanistan in the eighties, and we started to supply the um, the Afghani's the Stinger missile systems, which enabled them to knock their helicopters out of the sky. You know, this kind of showed the fact that we had reached a level of advancement that um, they were not able to really um, counter, at least at the time. And this was because they had sort of become too, I think, too, um, their, their problems had become too systemic in their country. And ultimately that caused them to withdraw from Afghanistan. <laughs> so the Soviet Union. Uh, ultimately fell apart because uh, Gorbachev, which was the leader, had come up with an idea, uh, which was a good idea, that you needed a strong central um, communist government, but that the markets needed to be free. You needed to have a free market system with a strong central government. This enabled the government to get things done for the sake of you know, national security and the, the, the country's interests without having to go through political bickering, etc. But at the same time, people, the, the, the ordinary people, would be beholden mostly to the free market system, you know, get their jobs just like we do in the United States, go to school, etc., get paid, go buy things, and all that. Now, what successful system, so far successful, is modeled after that? China. China actually turned into that. They did it. Their, their communist government did it so far in a successful way. They transitioned from a Stalin sort of closed system to a um, communist government with a free market system and so far have been very successful with it. So um, that's interesting. It didn't go that way for Gorbachev. What ultimately happened was is that when they allowed freedom of the press and the media, the media took big advantage and started to criticize um, the, the, the government and the people started to get, you know, more and more sort of angry and disillusioned with uh, the feeling of, of what communism was all about. And the uh, central government said, you know what, we're not going to stop any of our um, independent sort of countries, the other countries, you know, Ukraine, East Germany, whatever, Czechoslovakia, from uh, sort of enacting any reforms they want to enact. We're not going to move in with tanks and... Uh, start killing people if they decide to change. And so immediately what happened was all of those countries went into revolution and most of them were peaceful. A couple of cases like Romania where they weren't, but most of them were peaceful and uh, they all just basically, be, you know, East Germany and West Germany reformed together. They became one country. A lot of the other countries became effectively democratic and um, cut off ties to the the rest of Russia, and, uh, you know, there was a couple of countries in there, like Bulgaria or something, or whatever, or Belarus, or maybe uh, Belarus, where they basically, you know, stayed um, hardline and all this sort of stuff, but for the most part, all the other countries uh, had left um, the Soviet Union, and, uh, you know, this was in the early 90s, and things were really difficult for many countries because they, you know, they wanted to join with the rest of the West, but at the same time, they were in massive poverty. However, before all of that happened, I mean, throughout the 80s and the 70s, we were always in the United States under this uh, constant fear of the Soviets because they were uh, 
you know, dangerous. They had a lot of nuclear weapons, and they were um, pretty much, you know, our, our enemy. But a lot of it was probably brought up, you know, when you look back on it now, a lot of it was probably more... Um, uh, us being the the bit of saber rattlers versus them. Uh, we would, especially during Reagan, we would get very aggressive towards them. And uh, we would, um, you know, have giant military operations, overfly their bases, um, you know, and their land and photograph. I mean, imagine if you were that you're living in your your place, you know, and wherever you are right now, and overhead you see a plane flying very high, right? And um, you see missiles being fired at it, and it's uh, it's dodging those missiles. And you, you hear later in the news that that was a spy plane from, uh, say, uh, I don't know, just pick a country. Say that was a spy plane from North Korea that flew over, and it, was, it managed to evade um, our missile system, and uh, it was taking photos of everything. And you would sit there and say to yourself, well, this is bullshit. Why are the North Koreans able to fly over our country and take pictures? But that was the sort of stuff that we were doing to them. Uh, you know, we were flying bombers and things that were going right to their border and then to track, you know, leaving, etc. And um, one of the things about the, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the fact that, you know, the, the Soviet Union was going to put missiles in Cuba and aim them, you know, at the United States, and that was very close. That would not allow those missiles to hit us, um, you know, maybe within a few minutes. And so, you know, we didn't want that to happen. But one of the reasons that they had actually done that was the fact that we had put um, nuclear missiles into Turkey, and they were just minutes away from Moscow. And, you know, we ended up actually agreeing to remove those missiles out of Turkey uh, in, in order for them to not go ahead and put those missiles into Cuba. That was that big standoff. Uh, but during the Reagan era, um, because Soviet aggression had not really stopped, you know, they were in, you know, they had basically expanded into Afghanistan. You know, we had fought them in proxy wars like Vietnam and uh, the Korean War, as well as little campaigns um, like, I don't know, the island of Grenada and those sorts of things that were different influences being, uh, you know, used against us. And so, you know, Reagan ended up putting missiles into uh, Europe. And uh, there was the idea that they were going in, all this sort of stuff, and the Russians were really upset about this, and we got really into a very, very close to nuclear war posture with them um, because we were really sort of saying, you know, we're, you know, um, we're ready to go. If you're ready to go, we're ready to go. Uh, let's just do it. You know, let's just, let's just do it. Let's do it. And, you know, otherwise you know, come to the bargaining table. And and basically, you know, that's sort of what Gorbachev did. He came to the bargaining table and, you know, they, they were worried about our Star Wars plan, which wasn't lightsabers and stuff. We had basically said we were going to put, like, defense systems up into orbit that would destroy missiles uh, up there. And even though that was ridiculous, we basically had no way of doing it and we had no real money to do it. Uh, they believed that we were going to do it and that was probably good enough. And... But really, what ultimately happened was all of this pressure and all of this influence and everything wasn't really what destroyed uh, the Soviet Union. Um, ultimately, it was the fact that Gorbachev had come in and he said, you know, I wanted to create this new type of thing, and their own internal problems caused them to crumble. And the people revolted and everything like that. Um, but, you know, during the time, you had this real big fear of uh, what could happen um, when another powerful nation... Uh, 
at times probably more powerful than the United States, were uh, interested in dominating the rest of the world and taking over your um, your your freedoms in order to determine what it is you you're going to do, etc. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because uh, you know I don't think in in terms of the the world and in the societies we live in that we've really found out yet the real answer towards um, how things are going to turn out. You know, we've all, the whole world seems, outside of a few countries, the whole world has seemed to have embraced capitalism. And it wasn't like that, you know, before. There was people out there that really believed that, you know, you could do it differently. You didn't have to be beholden to dollars and cents, and you could um, share things and and be part of community. And it's hard to really know... um, whose system is better in turn because because happiness is a, is a difficult metric to measure and, you know and it's hard to know if people were um without capitalism were happy in a society where things were provided for them uh, you know i watched these really interesting documentaries that the bbc had put together life after russia and they had gone and done these three parts uh, special one was in czechoslovakia one was in um, Romania, and one was in East Germany. And they interviewed people, and they talked about the different sort of lives that these people lived under their d- different, you know, local um, Soviet-style governments. And what was interesting about it was that these people were, in many cases, um, not always happy uh, to have no longer be part of that system. And I found it very interesting that women especially um, were uh, unhappy to have left uh, the Soviet uh, Union to live a life in in a capitalist society. And you would think that that would be, you know, strange because, um, you know, women like going shopping. I mean, men like going shopping too, but women like going shopping and they like buying new things and all this sort of thing. But the, the things that they would say would be fairly interesting. Like if you, you know, had children and, you know, your husband had been estranged or whatever, died or something, uh, you never had to worry about a place to live or have food on the table or get medical care. The government would provide a nanny for you and, and provide, um, you know, health care and all this sort of stuff that today we basically have to, um, you know, we have to have or you're not going to survive. I mean, the struggle in the capitalist system didn't exist then, you know, for them. We, you know, have programs in place in our society, which basically determines, you know, if you don't have money, the government will provide you some money. If you don't have a place to live, the government will provide you a place to live, etc. But uh, this was... Those are for, you know, the, the most poor people that there are. And here you had just programs that basically said, you know, you're going to have all this stuff. And, you know, transportation and things were free. And if you wanted to go on vacation and all of this sort of things, you know, you could travel and do all of this. And it was it was free for you. And um, it's an interesting. It's, in, it's an interesting thing because, you know, how do you measure happiness? Are you happy because you can go to the store and buy a PlayStation 3 and you can play it? Um, you know, but some people may have found happiness in the fact that they could be um, around friends and family and stuff and not have to worry about, say, uh, the threat of them not paying their rent or um, not paying their bills, you know, on time, etc., and that they would have to pay all of these fines and live in this sort of, 
shadow of paying debts the rest of their lives. They would have none of that. You know, they basically got up, they went to work, they did their job, they went home, they had dinner with their families, maybe they watched some TV. Sure, there was a black market. They would watch a movie or they would go see a show and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's interesting. It's interesting. And But without question, they had, you know, they had huge problems and they just weren't able to keep up. And that was one of the, the bigger problems. While they were keeping up, I think, inside that society, it may have been per- fairly good for people. But when they were no longer able to keep up, the attractions of the West became too great for their civilization. You know, they wanted what we had. They wanted new clothes and um, electronic devices, and everybody wanted a car and, and all of this. And But I don't think they ever really grasped the fact that, you know, you can have all that, but they have to work hard in order to get it, and uh, that they would be on their own now. They would no longer have a, a government that took care of them. And so... It's interesting, you know. It's it's an it was an interesting world for them, and you know I've talked to many Russians. I mean, I've worked in this computer industry. You know, we would hire these people because they all came over from there. They couldn't make money in their their country, and we I've I've worked with three different Russians, and I've talked to them about. Well, one guy was from U- the Ukraine, two other guys from Moscow, and um, talked to them about their their lives and everything, and they're very happy living in the United States, and they didn't like living over in Russia, you know, anymore, and. Obviously, I mean, the things over there had collapsed for them. I mean, these people were, you know, uh, the, the late you know, people in that society later in time. But they also had a lo- an, an immense sense of pride. I mean, they had their own internet over there that they would talk about that was different than ours, that, you know, was inside their universities. And they um, they had all sorts of interesting uh, technologies and things that we just didn't have and, and, and et cetera. But like the one guy, you know, he was sent to... Um, Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war and he refueled helicopters and he was Jewish and they didn't allow him to say go into certain parts and do certain things because they were very you know anti-semitic over there they didn't want well actually means anti-israel I guess but they you know what I'm saying they didn't like Jews and so um they you know put him inside you know different uh different things in order to keep him sort of contained so he was very happy when he could leave and you know some of these other guys just couldn't make any money etc in the countries they were in and so of course you know you come to a place where you can get a job and make more money and have a life that's you know not so bad it, it's it's pretty good but you know i i do wonder at times when things were good in that country when things were um in the early days when you had gone from being you know a a, a factory worker that had nothing to suddenly being given a, a house and food and uh all of these things, if your life, you know, how would you think about it then? And I think the reality was is that they did really well with it. So socialism is an interesting thing. I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, um, I think it's too easily corrupted. I think you end up with a government in power that ultimately dictates and says how things should go, and they make choices based on their own ability to stay in power, and that is to the detriment of their own uh, people. And the Soviet Union is just a great experiment that failed, and. It's interesting to see how China will do. I, I think that they may end up, uh, you know, their government may not be able to react as well to their problems, and therefore um, their people may ultimately pressure them enough to to um, dissolve in some sense. But I'm not really impressed with the way that the United States government has been working because it seems like it's too beholden to corporate wealth in the economy, because you, in order to keep the people happy in the society, you have to keep everybody working, and so 
um, politicians have to go to businesses and say to businesses, I really need your jobs. And the businesses say, well, I can give you the jobs, but what are you going to do for me? And we have a society that is too tightly knit. You know, it is basically a plutocracy. And very little gets done um, for the people for the people's sake. I mean, most of the time when we talk about uh, who we're electing to be um, the leader of our country, we don't really think about social programs and, and things of that nature. We just constantly think about business and how is this affecting business and how is it business going to do business and how are people going to keep jobs and business and business and business. And, of course, you have to because our, our society has been built around uh, the this need to have everybody working and producing and so people can afford to survive. We've built a society where the government can't really afford to keep people alive itself, so we have to basically rely on corporations to, to sustain us by doing work for them. And... Um, or, you know, small business, or whatever. I say corporations, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. And so that's an interesting thing, and I, I you know, it, sometimes you wonder to yourself, you know, this this political fighting that goes on, you know, is it, would it be better if we, you know, had a system that was more um, just one party like they do that's, you know, that determines the best approach for the people rather than for, say, um, the economy? And I'm not sure. I don't think, you know, it's it's too fragile right now, the United States in that sense. You know, I don't really think that uh, the country can tolerate a lot of um, earthquakes, in essence, to its, to, its, uh, to its structure. You know, we, before, like, um, uh, World War II, the country, the United States, for instance, did not tax anyone except the wealthy. Uh, there was no income tax on anyone except the wealthy. And it was actually uh, determined that, you know, this, that, that there was no law that enabled people to actually um, be taxed by income tax. I think it was constitutionally protected at the time. So, um, the, you know, the problem was, though, before World War II, the country didn't have enough money. It just didn't have enough money. And they had tried um, a few times to enact a, a form of income tax in order to um, gain more money for the central government, the federal government. Because, I mean, really, the federal government just doesn't have a, a real good way to make money outside of, of income tax. I mean, your state tax has sales tax and property tax and all these other things that go on for local and, and all that. But the federal government just didn't have a... Um, a really good way, I mean, uh, to, especially back then, when you, you know, you could say, well, there was tariffs and things like this, but you needed to have people there to monitor all of that sort of thing, you know, and very difficult to keep everybody together and organized enough that the money would actually get to where it was supposed to be. So, you know, ultimately World War II came and we ended up with this income tax. And the, But the thing is, is that, you know, that went to pay for the war. And then after the war ended, they kept the income tax. And we pay this income tax to the federal government to provide things. And yet we find that, you know, what happens if we ran into another, you know, calamity situation where we had to pay, you know, um, money to, um, to, keep our, to keep our country... Um, say in a, in a sustained conflict and you know the reality is is that you know we're already paying a lot of money into the federal government for this sort of thing so you know how much more money can you actually take from people 
so that people are able to um, survive themselves and not revolt when um, things get bad. I think you could certainly take more than what's being taken right now, but I don't think you could take much more. I guess that's my point. I think that um, people's lifestyles right now, you know, could people survive on less pay and still make it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, how long could you really do that and still get things done? I think everybody could chip in for a war and a conflict, but at some point, you know, you look around and things are falling apart because you're not paying for things. And I think that's what's kind of going on in the United States today. I think that we have um, a society now that is no longer paying for the replacement of all of the things that it's built because we're paying so much money into... Um, Medicare and Social Security and a giant military that we probably don't need anymore. And um, the things that are probably important, uh, that could probably create jobs, etc., build the infrastructure, aren't getting done. Now, would that happen under a communist government, a Soviet-style government? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that they would um, take the money and, and build the things that have to be done because that's what happens in China. Well, we need a dam okay, we're going to build a giant fucking dam and we're going to move all the people off the side of this river and we're going to put them all in the new housing. Uh, we don't have enough water up into the northeast, we're going to build a giant pipeline. We're going to move that pipeline up into the northeast and it's going to provide water for all those people. I mean, that is a country that the government sits there and says, what do we have to do? Oh, we need a high-speed rail line? We'll build the high-speed rail line. And they get it done because they, the, the government doesn't have any of this political misdirection that goes on today. And... You know, we can't get high-speed rail lines in the United States because it's not, you know, economically viable for for our governments to do. And you just, it, I don't know, you just, you know, it just seems like, you know, we're, we're stuck in a rut where nothing really happens and it's all beholden to whatever uh, the corporate interests want in this country. And in a lot of cases, I think that's fine. I think that the businesses need to make money and they hire tons of people. But I also think that there are things that could and should be done for the benefit of the people that don't get done because there's too much of, you know, of this stuff happening. Now, you know, back in the day, you know, around the Cleveland area during, you know, the Cold War, we had these things called Nike missile sites. And they're all over the, they're, they're mostly gone now, but some buildings remain, etc., and all along the northern part of the United States, they had built these missile bases, missile batteries that would, um, they would look like little buildings and they would have these missile bays. They just popped up out of the ground. These large missiles on stands um, would be pointed out towards, um, you know, the sky, basically. And uh, these uh, were used because they felt that the Soviet Union would invade via bomber. And the bomber strikes would come down over Canada. They would fly over the Arctic, come down straight from Canada. And Bama. So we had built all these uh, missile batteries, and you can tour them, etc. Today, and you know we built on uh, you know NORAD inside the side of a mountain in order to survive a nuclear attack. We built um, giant missile silos in Utah in order to in Washington State, etc. In order to fire missiles back at um, the Soviet Union. Our aircraft carriers, submarines, etc., were designed to fight this enemy, and um, and really, you know, when it all comes down to it, it was a difference of an idea. It was just a different idea about how to manage um, a society, 
the the Soviet idea was to have a strong central government um, determine what it is you are allowed to have and what it is you can do. And if you look around and you look through, look at North Korea today, look at Cuba today, look at any post-communist country, it's a failure. It's a failure because they are not really able to um, produce and provide the sort of wealth that the people want and need, and they cannot motivate the people to do more because the people, you know, they don't have any incentive to really do better. And uh, you look at any capitalist society today, and for the most part, it's booming. It's doing very well. So, you know, really, the idea, it was all an idea that ultimately one side was going to win, one side wasn't going to. And the United States basically was a check balance to that, in essence, stopping the Soviets from just invading other countries, such as Afghanistan, or maybe taking over all of Korea. You know, I think ultimately they won uh, Vietnam. But you get the idea. There was this big game, this big sort of situation going on where they would try and um, control one side or the other. You know, communist or capitalist. And uh, at the end of the day, the capitalists won. But what had happened to a regime that lasted over 50 years uh, is interesting. It's just interesting. And they built so many crazy things. A couple of interesting stories. Uh, you know, Soviet, you know, you weren't really, you know, able to penetrate it. And um, there was this aircraft, it was a Korean airliner that had um, been flying. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was going from... Um, Korea to the to the United States, and um, it, you know, back and forth that kind of thing. It was leaving from oh I don't know some place in like uh, out east somewhere, and it had to land in Alaska, and which was a standard thing to land in Alaska, refuel, and then head from Alaska over to Japan. And if you look at a map, this usually if you if, if you went through a straight line going from one to the other, you would be flying through um, part of uh, Russia. And what ultimately happened was that, you know, these people were on board this plane. And uh, if you were sitting on the plane, you would look out your window and you would see, uh, you know, outside of the wing, you would see a um, fighter fighter aircraft. And um, you would be like, wow, there's a freaking, there's a freaking fighter aircraft, jet fighter, uh, flying next to um, our, our jet plane. And... Um, You'd be asking the stewardess, like, what the fuck is that doing there? And, they, you know, the stewardesses and things were probably, you know, on that route were probably trained, and they probably just said, you know, well, that's, they're probably just looking us over, and don't worry, you know, we're, we're probably close to, um, you know, their airspace, and this is not unusual. You know, we see these things all the time. And then one of the fighter airplanes uh, opened fire and uh, strafed the side of the, um, of the passenger jet. And, uh, you know, these... Giant bullets come rattling in, blasting holes inside the, um, the the side of the jet, and two people just get ripped apart by these bullets. And your masks drop down, and everything, and you're breathing, and you're freaked the fuck out because you've just been hit. And the and the plane um, starts to lose altitude and all of this stuff, and uh, ultimately um, crash lands inside Russia. And uh, all of the people, other than the two people that get killed. Um, were uh, eventually rescued and paid for by uh, other countries um, and had to, you know, were, were airlifted out. 
uh, because basically they had just simply crossed into Soviet airspace. Now, again, a Korean airliner had um, b basically been doing the same thing, flying from uh, Alaska to Korea, and the um, a similar event had taken place, except that it had taken place during a time when um, the United States was involved in a very large um, war games operation, the largest of its kind, um, in the Pacific. And we had been flying, overflying uh, Soviet bases, etc., and being very, you know, intimidating them and uh, testing, you know, for a, an eventual world World War Three type of operation. And so they were very much on guard, etc., and they were tired of our spy planes and all this sort of stuff flying overhead. And so um, the uh, the Soviets. Um, had detected an aircraft flying over their territory, and this was a uh, Korean Air, you know, uh, flight, and it had um, fucked up again, uh, effectively. Um, there was a congressman on board, this particular, you know, U.S. congressman, uh, some like 220 people, I think, were on board this, this jet. It was, you know, pretty well loaded, and um, the uh, they had scrambled fighters to try and intercept it, and... Um, they had initially not been able to catch up to it or, or find it in, in, because their radar systems apparently were actually down. And, um, and then it had reached an island, and they were ordered to shoot it down. And the pilot um, that was uh, flying alongside of the plane um, had a difficult time staying with the plane because, you know, a large jet versus a jet fighter, they fly at different speeds and the jet fighter can't really slow down enough um to uh sort of stay behind the jet it it had to pass it up and at one point the jet had actually um raised its altitude which i forget exactly why that took place but the you know there was a there was just a logical reason for it but the um the soviets saw this as invasive you know an evasive maneuver and meaning that they were trying to escape. So, you know, they had ordered them to shoot this plane down. They, they, the, the pilot had said, yes, it did look like a, a passenger plane, but what did it matter? He said, all of these spy planes look like passenger planes. There's no way to know the difference. He did report that their lights were on, that they were blinking, but the Soviets had said, you know, um, it didn't matter. They were in our territory. So um, the pilot couldn't figure out a way to actually shoot it down. He had actually used up all of his bullets firing in front of the plane but he said probably didn't really matter because he didn't have any sort of tracer fire in his plane so he said it'd be amazing if the if the pilots of the jet had actually seen his bullet fire and so he figured out that what he could do was um circle around and basically dive and then pull up on his stick and he pulled up on his stick and he finally got a lock onto this this passenger jet and fired his missiles. Basically, what had happened at that point then was the missile had detonated behind the um, behind the jet, and it apparently shot enough shrapnel in to um, disable three of the four hydraulic systems on the plane. The plane actually was able to maintain some control for a while. I think um, maybe fifteen minutes or so. Um, it was able to continue flying, and then it basically started to um, 
sort of spiral down out of the sky um, and uh, sort of had a, a sort of a slow sort of fall out of the sky. They hated to have been a passenger on that plane because you just would have been sitting there like your fucking plane just got blown by a missile up in the back. You're, you're fucking tumbling out of the sky and this whole horror show is going on for you for like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. And, uh, ultimately the plane, um, smashed into the ocean and all 220 some people had died, uh, simply because they flew over Soviet territory. Uh, this gives you an idea of the, um, seriousness of it because you know i don't even think today um if a jet aircraft had flown over say north korea and i'm just guessing but i don't think that the north koreans would shoot it down i think that they recognize um you know the sort of pr type of situation that that would generate for them but the soviets didn't give a shit about anything like that i mean they just didn't care i mean they didn't want to kill innocent people but they just didn't care it it was a situation with them that they had their own government and they didn't want anybody interfering with what they had and they were willing to do the most brutal of things in order to maintain their own uh dominance in their own region so uh interesting stuff so I thought I would finish the broadcast. I'm just going to play a few different audio clips and things of um, some Soviet-era type stuff and let you guys kind of hear, you know, some, some bits and pieces of what things were like. Um, and, and finally, I'll also say, if you, know, if you want to write into the show, you can say send an email to kbaird at vgn.us. Also, check out the website videogamenews.com. That's the main website. There is an Oblast forum post there once you register and become a user. Um, you can also email me if you want to get a registration code in order to get on the website. The website is invite-only. Uh, that enables it to stay out of reach of spammers and that sort of thing. Um, kbaird at vgn.us. But, um, yeah, if you go on there and there's an Oblast thing, you can request episodes. You know, I generally talk sort of loosely about different topics and try to be informative and that sort of thing and get people's mind working so you can like go and investigate and look at many different things uh, on the internet it's the point of this show so thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the rest of these audio clips thanks
excerpt from Mozart's Eine kleine Nachtmusik came to you in the transmission of Radio Berlin International, the voice of the German Democratic Republic. Last item on tonight's agenda, the true face of imperialism. 333 North American firms are spread out along the Mexican border from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico, like a huge string of pearls. U.S. News and World Report recently described this expansion as an excellent example of the industrialization program going on in the border areas in the north of Mexico. The first projects in a 12-mile stretch of border area began in 1965. The trusts brought in their own building materials, semi-finished products, and the raw materials for production. According to the same article in U.S. News and World Report, the value of the finished products made by Mexican workers receiving exceptionally low wages rose between 1966 and 1971 from seven to $500 million. The major part was then exported across the nearby border to the United States, with little or no customs duty having to be paid. It is Bendix, Mattel, Lockheed, and Honeywell who are producing electronic equipment, toys, and textiles in Mexico, and are getting rich on low production costs and super exploitation. Monopoly-controlled industrialization, whether by the USA, the FRG, or any other imperialist country, means super profit for the monopolies as long as they can rule the roost. But this will not last forever. The measures taken by Iraq and Chile against the foreign monopolies are just two examples showing the future trend. The true face of imperialism was the last item in this week's program. We shall open the new week with Spotlight on Sport and with news and views from the GDR. Thank you for listening and good night. You have been listening to the English program in the European service of Radio Berlin International, the voice of the German Democratic Republic. The Office of Civil Defense has issued the following message. This is an attack warning. Repeat, this is an attack warning. Attack warning means that an actual attack against this country has been detected and that protective action should be taken. This is an emergency action notification. All broadcast stations shall broadcast emergency action notification message number two, red card. This station has interrupted its regular program at the request of the United States government to participate in the emergency broadcast system. During this period, some stations will stay on the air as part of the emergency broadcast system. Those stations will broadcast news and information for the general public in the assigned areas. You should now tune your radio dial until you hear a station which is broadcasting news and information for your area. Until further notice, this station will not be broadcasting news and information for your area. I repeat, this station will not be broadcasting news and information for your area until further notice. You should now tune your radio dial until you hear a station which is broadcasting news and information for your area. I repeat, the Office of Civil Defense has issued the following message. This is an attack warning. This is BBC Television from London. Normal programming has been suspended.
Although our main interest was in women, we met and photographed many typical Soviet people in the course of their everyday activities. Upon our arrival in Moscow in July, we were greeted by our Russian friends who had visited San Francisco. To acquaint us with old and new Moscow, engineer Ola Shishkova took the day off and drove us around the city. An evening at the home of Dr. Margarita Zakharova. Her apartment within five minutes walk of her work is on the edge of the city and overlooks Moscow River. From her apartment window, neighbors swimming and boating in the long summer evening. A few apartment house tenants had small vegetable gardens nearby. Boys played ball along the riverbank. Margarita looked across the river and said, the Nazis came almost to there. Many residential areas are planned as units with schools and playgrounds, polyclinics and laundries stores and theaters all within walking distance. Housing complexes are subdivided into micro-districts, small enough to give a neighborhood community feeling. In the midst of Moscow, a garden and play yard in the Cheryomushki district. There's room to play or to hang out clothes. Grandmothers who help at home and many families can visit with neighbors. We met a school teacher taking a year's leave with her baby. The children here told us they could walk to school in less than five minutes without having to cross any streets. Their clubhouse is nearby too and so is the children's polyclinic. Newspaper headlines tell the story. Hermann Titov of Russia returns to Earth after orbiting the globe 17 times in a little more than 25 hours, covering 435,000 miles, which is more than twice the distance from the Earth to the moon. An orbit by a U.S. astronaut is planned later this year. usual Russian secrecy prevailing, this launching is from previous films, showing a rocket liftoff similar to the one used in the latest Soviet Union space fleet. Radio Moscow reports that the 26-year-old Titov landed exactly in the planned area. This view is of the Earth, seen from a rocket outside the atmosphere. Recording equipment such as this was able to pick up Major Titov's messages as he wrote a new chapter in space history. Radar tracked Titov, as it did his predecessor, Major Yuri Gagarin. With no details released by the Russians on the space flight, this series of animated scenes demonstrates the course of an orbit around the Earth.